Welcome to the A-plus EdTech Podcast. My name is Ashley McBride, and I'm an Instructional Technology Facilitator. In this episode, I'm talking to Julie Smith. Julie is the author of Master the Media, one of Dave Burgess's books. And Julie is a media and communication specialist at Webster University in St. Louis. She's been teaching there for about 17 years, and she travels around the world and talks to people about mass media and media literacy. When I went to ASCD Empower 17, I happened to be wandering around and looking at different books, and I stopped by the Dave Burgess booth, and I saw her book. When I picked up the book, I started to flip through it just a little bit, and I thought to myself, well, I'm about to do a presentation for the PTSA about media, and I felt like this book could help. So I'm on the airplane on the way back home, and I read the entire book as I'm flying from California to North Carolina, and I'm just taking notes and highlighting things and my husband's sitting next to me and he's like is it is it that good and I told him yes I told him this book was fantastic and I completely changed about 95% of my presentation I enjoyed the book so much that I went back and I spoke to my media specialist and I recommended she read it and my tech assistant, I recommended she read it, I recommended my husband read it, and I recommend it for any teacher and any parent. Um, If you're dealing with media, so even if you're not a teacher or a parent, I recommend this book for everybody. So after I had read the book and I had used it to help with my presentation, And I started to solicit everybody that I could uh, for the fact that they needed to read this book. I thought about asking Julie for an interview on my podcast, and I was really nervous about it. So I sent her a tweet, and she tweeted back quickly. It was was amazing how quickly she, she got back to me. And she said she would be excited to come on the show. So we scheduled a time. And we sat down and had a conversation for a little while. And I hope you enjoy listening to me talking to Julie Smith. My name is Julie Smith. I teach in the media communication department at Webster University in St. Louis. I've been there for 17 years. And I teach media literacy, intro to mass media, digital media and culture, religion in the media, anything media related. And I also travel around and talk about media literacy and social media. So I have the funnest job in the whole wide world. How did you become interested in media literacy? Funny that you asked that question because I can almost tell you the exact moment. I was in graduate school and I was talking to one of my former professors and and he said, Julie, what do you really want to do? And I thought for a second and I thought, I want to teach people how to watch TV because that's what people were doing then, right? It was 1990 something. (laughs) And he said, you're talking about media literacy. And I'd never heard that phrase before, but I'll never forget it because finally I had a name for what I had been wanting to do for a long time. I just didn't know there was a name for it. What professor was that? Do you remember? Oh, sure. His name is Jack Lulee. He is now a professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. But I had him at University of Tulsa when I was doing my undergraduate work. And he was one of those professors, you know, we've all had them, the ones who light a fire under you. And and he was that person for me. So one of the things you say in your book is that everything in the media is a construction. 
Can you explain that comment? Yeah, what that means, Ashley, is that everything that we see in the media is a result of many, many different decisions by the producers of that media. So if we're watching uh, a reality show, of course, there's decisions made by the directors and the sound people and the editors and the networks, right? And even if we're watching a baseball game, we might think that it's really not constructed, but of course it is because there's the placement of the ads, there's the, the angle of the cameras, there's the commentator. So what it means when things are constructed is essentially that, that everything is presented to us in a very specific and deliberate way. And it's the result of many, many decisions by many, many people. Nothing is very um, automatic or accidental in the media. It's all very deliberate and constructed. And I, I love that comment. Because I honestly, before I read your book, I hadn't thought about that. I, I think it's just one of those things we take for granted because you watch the uh, Olympics or something like that and you just, there's heart-wrenching stories and you don't even, you don't even think about the fact that they're trying to pull those emotional strings. Of course, <laughs> of course. And you know what, Ashley, when I go around and travel, I always have teachers or parents ask me, where is a great place to get news? Where is a, a good non-biased source for news? Is C-SPAN, is it just C-SPAN? Is that the only source that's objective? And I, I kind of have to tease them a little bit because I say, well, C-SPAN doesn't have those commentators, right, to tell us what we think or tell us what to think about what's happening. But there are people at C-SPAN deciding what to show and what not to show. So even something that seems as objective as C-SPAN still is a construction, a, a result of someone's decisions. So since you bring that up, do you have any suggestions for making sure that you get news stories that uh, can be trusted? <laughs> oh, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I typically give a couple pieces of advice. I like to tell people that it doesn't matter where they get their news as long as they know where it's coming from. So if I, for example, if I pick up a national review, I know it is a conservative Catholic magazine. If I pick up the New Republic, I know that it's a liberal magazine. If I pick up the Wall Street Journal, I know that it's going to be more conservative than the New York Times or the Washington Post. If I watch MSNBC, I know it's going to have a different slant than Fox. So I would never tell somebody that anyone's news source is bad necessarily as long as you accept their point of view and of course the the baggage and bias that you yourself bring to the experience right so i encourage people to get news from as many sources as possible and to definitely be aware of the slant of the news that's presented to them and their own personal biases that they that they carry with them and that, that's tough for a lot of people to acknowledge that they have their own biases when it comes to news consumption. It's, it's tough for my students too. My college students struggle with that. And you say, you know, get the same stories from different places, but man, that takes a lot of time. <laughs> it's work and we're lazy. Yes. <laughs> we would like the stories and the facts handed to us on a platter, but now I think we're living in such an interesting post-truth world where people are much more interested in what they believe than what is true. Mm -hmm. There's a neat phrase that news right now is pulled news. And what that means is that it's the opposite of what it was. Like when I was growing up with Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather, which was pushed news, we had maybe two or three sources for news and the news was pushed on us at certain times during the day. Now, researchers say that we have pulled news, which means we have thousands of news options available to us 24 hours a day, and we pull news from whatever sources we want, which is great because we have all these news sources, right? But that also means that we are 
typically only choosing sources that will reaffirm what we already believe. So it kind of puts us in, in a bit of an echo chamber or a, a bubble where we're really not confronted with opinions or facts or spin that we disagree with. Yeah. And you call that in your book, selective exposure. Is that correct? I do. And it's so important, especially during an election year, that we, the idea behind selective exposure is that we only expose ourselves to messages that we know we're going to agree with, or we know that aren't going to cause us any mental discomfort. And selective exposure is also related to selective retention, right, where we only remember what we want to remember. So that's kind of the reason that my super conservative sister-in-law watches Fox and my super liberal conservative, or my super liberal sister-in-law watches MSNBC, right? They like that affirmation of their already held beliefs. And it's comfortable, but it can be dangerous at times. So does your social group play a role in this at all? Oh, absolutely. Because we tend, especially in social media, electronic social media, we tend to congregate and communicate with people who think, feel, believe, and vote the way that we do. So if we see a piece of news, and you can't see that I'm using air quotes when I say news, right? If we see a piece of news that we want to be true, we're less likely to check for its validity. And we'll send it through our social media channels. And if they also want it to be true, rather than checking, they will send it through. So that's the way a lot of things can go viral, even though they're not accurate. Um, To come off of news per se, there's one disturbing fact that really bothers me in your book. And it's not it's (laughs) not that you're wrong. I'm not saying that. But it's You say that in 1983, 50 companies owned 90% of the media, but today only six companies own nearly 90%. Can you elaborate on what that effect the shift has had? Yes. In fact, it's so interesting. In my intro to mass media class, we talk about the Telecommunications Act of 1996 in almost every chapter. It was signed into law by then President Bill Clinton. And what it did, one of the things that the law did was take away the limit of media companies that could own other media companies. So there may have been limits beforehand on how many radio stations a company could own or how many TV stations a company could own. Now there are no limits. So the big, bigger media companies started buying up television stations, publishing companies, radio stations, movie studios. So that now there's such a concentration of ownership in these six companies that we really don't have that much variety of media like we might think that we do because there's such a small number of people actually deciding what we're going to see and consume. So there's not a, a wide variety of voices. There's not a lot of diversity of voices in these big six companies, because we have to remember that they are privately held profit-based corporations, right? They don't exist to educate, inform, or entertain us. They exist to make money for their stockholders. So that's something that I try to get through to my students is they need to acknowledge their role in the economic structure of it all. That I don't think that we're ever going to go back to 50 companies owning all of our media. I think really the only thing we can do is help people understand how this affects us. Uh, It's so interesting if you really research everything that Walt Disney owns. Such a wide range of media products and, and most people don't even realize it. It's so fun to study that sort of thing and see how if you take a, a website or a magazine that you love, once you trace its ancestry, it will almost always go back to one of those big six companies. So pe- people just need to be aware of it. I mean, we can't really do anything about it. 
And one of the things, I believe you have uh, some, is it some images in, in your book or is it just lists? The, Q, the, Q, the QR codes? Uh, yeah, those QR codes that tell us, uh, can you can you talk about that, those just a little bit? Yes, actually, um, when Dave Burgess, the, the man who wanted to publish my book, suggested that I write a book about media literacy, my first thought was, gosh, Dave, the minute it comes off the press, it's going to be outdated. Right. Because the media changes every day. That's something that I love so much about my job is that there's always new stories to talk about. And so the QR codes were his idea. And I thought it was such a brilliant idea because I can update those as the stories change and as the resources change and as the websites change. So there are QR codes at the end of every chapter that will take either a parent or a teacher straight to all the resources I use in my own classroom and with my own children. So it's dynamic in a way and, and interactive in a way, which I think is helpful because you can't really write a book about the media and expect it to stay current for very right. long, right? Not in this environment. Right. And and I'm glad you pointed out that it was for parents and for teachers because one of my favorite things about this book is at the end of every chapter, you offer suggestions for teaching these media literacy topics at home and at school. Where did that idea come from? Was that was that you? Was that more Dave? I think it was a joint effort. I don't think I can give myself all the credit on that. But I really wanted the book to be accessible to both parents and teachers because you know, teachers play such an important role, but at the end of the day it's the it's the parents who are raising the child, right? So right. I wanted them to also play a role in the media education of, of the kids. We can't just assume that it, that librarians in every grade school are going to be the only media literacy teachers that the kids (laughs) experience, right? I want it to be uh, eye-opening for parents as well. Do you have any suggestions to get parents more involved? Because I'm I'm even having a conversation with some uh, other educators just today about parents not, they don't understand it, and so they kind of just say, all right, I'm going to let the school deal with it, or I'm going to, you know, just... (laughs) I'm going to do this. So do you have any suggestions for getting parents more involved in it? Well, I'm not an objective person to ask because I feel like media literacy should be a required class for every room, every grade, every day. Right. right? So I'm, I'm not objective. I have had really great luck talking to parents about media literacy when, uh, when a school might hire me to come and talk about social media or how social media is affecting the kids. Typically, a lot of parents will come to that and realize that it's so much more than just Instagram and Snapchat, right? Mm -hmm. That it's this whole media world. The latest statistics, Ashley, is that the average American spends 11 and a half hours a day with the electronic mass media. So it's, it's important that parents understand that I'm not telling them that the media are bad at all. I'm just saying with, with something, we spend so much time with something, we should probably analyze it a little more than we do. So it's, it's really simple for just to ask simple questions of kids, you know, who's the sender of that message? How did they construct it? What tools are they using to make you feel a certain way? How is music used? How is color used? How is the website design? What does a clickbait headline look like? Uh, how could other people interpret this information differently than me? What information is left out? Just engaging them in conversation to get them to kind of step back and and notice what they're consuming. It, it's not it's not rocket science, you know. Yeah. It's basic questions about stuff that we are consuming every single day. But like you said, it's work. 
right? It's, yeah, it's, 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 it it's one more thing to do. It's yeah, a lot of work. Yeah, but it's, but it's so important. My friend Jessica says that media literacy is a 21st century survival skill. And she's right. Yeah, I would she's agree right. with that. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, and that brings me to a quote that I love and I based, I, I did a presentation to our teachers about media. They wanted to know mostly about social media. And the quote that I ended up basing the whole thing off of was, we can't change the message or the sender, but we can educate the receiver. What suggestions do you have for teachers and their parents that are educating the receivers? And I know there's plenty in your book, but if there's any like quick <laughs> and, and go out and buy the book yes, and get all of college. the tips. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I kind of rant about, schools and parents spend a lot of time worrying about bullies online. And I hate that word because I feel like it's been overused uh, to the point where it's kind of lost its potency, kind of like the term fake news, right? right. It's just used so much now to describe anything we don't like. I feel like we really need, be, really need to be spending time on coping skills for kids because dealing with jerks is a life skill. Yeah. It's a skill you're going to need your whole life. And so that's kind of where that quote comes in. It's like people are going to be jerks no matter what. People have been jerks since the beginning of time. Right. Right? Yeah. We can't change that. We also can't make being a jerk online illegal. We have that wonderful First Amendment, which I love. Yeah. Right? So we can't outlaw it. So let's let's arm the kids. And I hate this word because it's so cliche. But let's empower the kids with tools for how to deal with negative situations in the media and on social media. Because those are skills they're going to need forever. So, you know, it's media literacy is not reactionary. And we're not we're not in favor of censorship at all. And we're not anti-business. We're merely saying in this environment, isn't it really smart to give kids tools to help them evaluate all of this information that's swirling around them all the time. So do you, do you have any final words about media literacy that you'd like to share? I know I, 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 could, I could go on all night. Actually. I know you, know you could, but at the same time, I don't want to give away your whole book. <laughs> Um, I, I think, I, I really think every parent and every teacher should, should have a copy of this and well, they should read the copy, not just have it. But, um, I really, <laughs> I, I got a lot out of it and I want you to know that, that as, Oh, I'm so thankful. Thank you so much for saying that. As both I an think... educator and a parent, I have gotten a lot out of it and I have very young oh, children that's... and I've already started to implement a number of the things that you mentioned. Oh, that's so great to hear. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think I just want parents and teachers to know that it's not it's not extra work necessarily. What we're doing is just trying to raise awareness and help kids evaluate what's real, what's meaningful, what's true, what's valuable to them, how media make them feel, and give them time to really reflect on this because I don't I don't think we take a lot of time for that sort of thing, for those kind of discussions. And we turn to media so much for our own identities and our own validation. I think it's really worth taking the time to, to talk to students and our kids about how it's affecting them. And teachers might be really surprised at how engaged students get when they start talking about these things in the classroom. You know, this is their world. This is the world they're living in. And when we can bring it into the classroom in a meaningful way, I think it engages them on a whole new level. So start out small. You know, it's not, it's not difficult to do. Just start asking questions. 
ask very basic questions. And there's some great resources online. Common Sense Media has a wonderful website to help parents and teachers. National Association for Media Literacy Education, namely, is a wonderful resource. Uh, I write about it a lot on my website. My website's heyjuliesmith.com. So little by little, I, I don't want people to be intimidated by the whole idea of being media literate. It's just a very gradual process, but it can actually really increase your enjoyment of the media once you understand so much more about it. And it sounds ironic, but it's very true. So now that we've told everybody the highlights of your book and we didn't give it all away, <laughs> I swear we didn't give it all away. I worked really hard to make sure my questions wouldn't give it the whole thing away. There's some other really, I mean, the whole thing's fantastic. I can't say enough about it. Where can people buy your book? Oh, uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble websites. And I'm not sure that it's in any bookstores necessarily, but Amazon and Barnes and Noble for sure. Okay. And the trunk of my car. In the trunk of your car. <laughs> <laughs> Traveling saleswoman. And we'll, I'll be putting links to your website, your Twitter handle, and where people can buy the book. Um, oh, thank you so much. All and in I the show give, notes. I have to give Shelley Burgess credit. She was the one that came up with the title, Master the Media. And I love that because it's not anti-media at all. It's just saying you know what, let's, let's be the masters of our consumption rather than the, these passive consumers, right? Right. And it, it is. It's a good title. It's a great book. People haven't read it yet. They need to. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this at all. Oh, my gosh. It was my pleasure. And like I said, I will talk about media literacy all day, every day. You just let me know. Thank you so much. I would really like to thank Julie Smith for coming on and taking the time to talk to me for this episode. If you'd like to follow Julie on Twitter or if you would like to purchase her book, all of the links and information that you need can be found on aplusedtech.com. <laughs>